happening. Glad to see you all. Um, if you're new here or if you've been around for a while, I mean, usually what happens is I'll stand up on the stage and open up this little book and read from the Bible, then make some comments about it. So I'll go one verse, talk about it, another verse, talk about it. That's usually how it works. And I'd say 95% of the time, that's just what we do here. Because uh, honestly, if you're showing up just to hear me talk about something I know, kind of a waste of your time and my time, I know very little. Uh, but it does make sense if God gave us this this whole book about himself and us. It makes sense we'd read it and talk about it. So we do that most weeks. Now, um, this week's getting a little bit different in that uh, we have a lot more stuff that I want to cover foundationally as we think about this book, Genesis. Uh, kind of the, it kind of gives us an understanding of who God is, how all this got started, who we are, all sorts of stuff. And um, So it might feel a little bit more academic today. got lots of stuff to cover, and so I'm going to read, then I'm going to talk for a while, then I'm going to read again. That's how it's going to go today. Um, just so you know, usually I, I have about a page and a half of notes, okay? One side here, another half there. That's just what it kind of worked through, maybe two pages of notes. Um, there's five pages of notes today, and so that is a significant amount. And so two pages of notes is about 55 minutes. So what I just offer to you is um, at about, I don't know, uh, 1040 other people start showing up. So if you'll just scoot in and just make sure that... <laughs> just joking, we should be okay here. But here's kind of the premise of this whole thing, okay? We would all admit... You don't have to be a Christian to admit this. You don't even have to be, like, believe in a God to admit this. We would all admit, admit there, there's some really broken parts of our world, right? Like a, another mass shooting this week, just, I mean, there's just chaos and disorder and brokenness all over the place. And then we can even, if we, if we were brave enough, right, we'd actually admit that not only is there chaos and disorder and brokenness and out there somewhere, but there's actually um, some chaos and brokenness and disorder in our own homes, or if we're really, really brave, in our own minds and hearts, right? Like, uh, the very things we really want to achieve and do are hard for us to do, right? Even the, the commitments we make for ourselves, it's really hard for us, and that's just, uh, not, it's just human nature. And so, the thoughts that we have, the beliefs we understand, all those things, I mean, uh, at times we would agree, I would think we'd agree, or at least I would agree, uh, hopefully you can understand this, that we are our own worst enemy. Like uh, the very people that you love the most, yourself, others, are the ones you tend to be the meanest to. So we're not talking about like, out there, bad world. We're just going, can't we just admit there is a lot of chaos and disorder going on in our world, in our own lives, and all that kind of stuff. And if that's the case, right, and if we're going to use it, maybe this would be the term, if we could admit uh, that something's broken in our world, in our lives, in the w- human interaction, all those kind of things, then we go, if it's broken, is it possible to fix it, right? And when you think about that in any level, when you have whatever it is in your life, your car, your house, whatever it is, you have to go, okay, if something is broken currently in your marriage, whatever it is, you have to go back to a point when it wasn't broken to kind of start the troubleshooting, right? You have to go, okay, now there's something off, but there, was there a time when it wasn't off with our kids, with our car, with our house, with my job, and go, okay, what was it like when it wasn't off to kind of then diagnose how to fix broken things, right? So when things break, you have to figure out how they were working when they weren't broke. Got it? Well, if our world's broke, then it would make sense that where we would start would be at uh, the very beginning, when things weren't broke, when things were made right, and when they were made whole. And some of you, when you hear that, you go, yeah, but you're going to now give me those, that folklore, the myth, the legend, the fairy tale of, you mean two people started this whole thing, and 
you got you got your you know, presuppositions, and there we all do, and our assumptions about how that's broken in terms of what science says. There's just all sorts of stuff to deal with when we go. When we start with God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, and six days, all that happened, and then, bam, here we are, and all they populated the whole earth. Like, did just the two of them do that? So this whole thing starts with incest. Like, what, they're, they're kids. I mean, how, you got all these complications that we got to work through and figure out. And so today, we're going to just start at the very beginning and just work through some of those um, assumptions we have and presuppositions and evidence that we can understand and just go, maybe, maybe there really is a God. And maybe he did put all this together and maybe he is faithful. Maybe he always had a plan. And so we're just going to see if that's the case, okay? So um, that's the plan today. And uh, so we're going to start in the beginning and I'm just going to read a a few verses of scripture in in Genesis and then uh, we'll talk about it for a while, okay? Now, one last thing I'll say before we get into this. There's so many like, I don't know, disclaimers that we have to cover here. And um, as we read this, this want to be really clear. The book of Genesis isn't a science book. It's not even a history book. I mean, there's some science that you see in it. There's some history, but that is not the purpose of the book of Genesis. In fact, that's not the purpose of the Bible at all. I mean, the pur- purpose of the Bible is God sharing his heart and his uh, love for his creation, uh, particularly the apex, the pinnacle of his creation, which is humankind. And so if we're to define this Bible, even the book of Genesis, we would say is a book written uh, over about 1,600 years by uh, numerous authors, all trying to help us understand that God loves us, God has a plan, and that plan was always to save us through Jesus, okay? So every single page of this Bible all points to one hero, one hero, and his name's Jesus, okay? So as we, that's the plan of the Bible, to show us how much we're loved and cared for, and today we'll get to finish up uh, this morning with communion together, celebrating the plan that Jesus did to save us, to make things right. And so we'll get there eventually. But in the beginning, we're going to start in Genesis. Here goes. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Okay, so we got God, we got the Holy Spirit. They're showing up there. And God said, let there be light. He gives permission for light to exist. All out of his mouth, this thing comes. Let there be light and there was light, okay? And then over the next, I don't know, uh, 23 verses, he's going to say on day one, he did this. On day two, he did this. And here's kind of what happens. Day one, he creates light. Day two, he makes an atmosphere. Day three, he creates drag ground um, and plants. Day four, sun, moon, stars, Jupiter, Mars, all those things. Uh, Day five, birds and sea animals. Day six, land animals and humans. And then on day seven, he rests, Okay, that's what happens. I would recommend you go and read it. Uh, but let me catch you up to the end of what he says at the end of uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse uh, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our own image. Something really important here. Uh, th- that's plural. We see this. God said, let us. That means he's having a conversation with someone, right? Pretty interesting. Uh, even, uh, this, is, this is also the Jewish Bible. Uh, this is actually how even the... Um, Quran starts. I mean, you got some complicated things here, and nobody knows what to do with that term. Let us make man in our own image. Right here in the beginning, you see this Trinitarian figure that God is actually talking to his son, Jesus. They're having a conversation over a family dinner and saying, let's make man our own image. Pretty interesting that that shows up there already. Let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and all over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own 
image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. So God created those. Get to talk about all that fun stuff next week. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. That means, Mommy and Daddy, you should love each other very much. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. See that? He gave the green plants for food, not for smoking. You understand that? (laughs) Verse 31, make sure, well, God created it. Yep, he said to eat it. So eat those green plants. God saw all that he made, and it was very good. So he's pretty proud of his creation here, right? God saw all that it made, and it was very good. And then there is evening, and then there is morning, the sixth day. Okay. So we're going to talk about all the stuff that happens with mankind next week. So make sure to come back, talk about gender, sexuality, all sorts of fun stuff. Um, uh, we'll get to that next week. But first, we've got to go, can we believe this account? Like, is this really how it all happened? I mean, there was a God, and he just spoke things into existence. And so as we think about that and work through it, I kind of want to just give you kind of a brief overview of um, some Christian theology of what we believe or some possible possibilities about beliefs in terms of how creation happened, Right. If creation happened, if it all started with God and he actually made the whole thing, then that changes everything, right? Because I would argue if there is a God who always existed, who was always faithful, who was always there, and if he created everything, if that's the case, if we can all in there, if we can all go, yep, we believe there is a creator God, then it leads to a very important question, which is why in the world would he create creation? Now, we understand this in scriptures that he says that he creates it to get the glory, But you go, well, he can create that and get glory, but you can't get glory without someone giving him glory. So then he creates people to give him glory. But going, is that the only reason he created us is just so we'd celebrate him? Well, yes, that's true. He does want us to celebrate him. He does want us to worship him. And inside of us, we all want to worship. But there is another component that's really, really important. And I talk about it all the time. Now, why did you decide to have kids if you had kids, right? Um, If it weren't an accident, like you planned it, the whole thing, right? Yeah. The reason being, in many ways, is because uh, you didn't want to lord over them. You didn't think they're your, uh, your retirement plan, that they were going to take care of you when you're old. And that, that wasn't your thoughts. You thought it'd be really neat to create life and experience life and be in relationship with life. someone else, right? So if we think about it, I mean, some of you, you got kids out of the house now. Like, they're gone. They have their own families. And the most important thing to you is actually having them back around the table right? You don't want to give you gifts. You want their presence, right? You actually want to be connected to them, right? There's something about us being connected to our children. There's nothing I love more than hanging out with my kiddos, right? There's just something so great about being in relationship with them, right? The really neat thing is you're not raising kiddos, you're raising adults, and most of the time you'll spend with your kids will be with them as adults, and you'll get to be friends one day, hopefully, right? And that's just a glorious thing. And so we understand in that, that we decided either consciously or subconsciously that we would have kiddos because we wanted to be in relationship with those kiddos. Well, if we're made in God's image and the God of the universe creates all of us, then we go, well, why in the world would he create us? Well, the best possible explanation is because he wanted to be in relationship with us, right? The God of the universe wanted to know you and be connected to you and be known by you. Like, that was very important to him, right? He moves mountains, fills in valleys so that you can be connected to him, and you'll see the story of his plan for that next week, right? 
But if we can start with the idea that God creates and God starts the whole thing, then the next really simple solution would be, well, he does that because he wants to be in a relationship with us. So today, we're going to try to figure out if God actually does these things. So I'm indebted to a couple of uh, writers, pastors, particularly Tim Keller, did some really great work uh, in this, this arena. Um, Reason for God, a book that he wrote, really helpful. Mark Driscoll wrote a book called Doctrine uh, and talks about creation, really, really um, uh, helpful using some of their material here. But here's, here's kind of the six different uh, views on how Christians view creation, okay? Um, first one, we'll call it uh, traditional creationism, one that St. Augustine would have kind of attributed, believed in thousands, hundreds of years ago. Maybe you'd call it historic creationism, and here's kind of the idea. Um, the earth is very old. That's what they would have taught. Very old earth, right? Very old earth. When you look at Genesis chapter 1, it says, in the beginning, that word in the beginning is the Hebrew word reshet, which really means uh, an indefinite period of time. So there is this belief that in the very beginning, God created the earth. Earth, really, really old, Right? And it's much older than human life, and that the earth was created at some point in eternity past. So earth created eternity past, and then over the course of six days, all of mankind shows up, right? So the idea that in the beginning, God created the earth, and then over about six days, he then does everything else. Now, the created the earth was over an indefinite period of time. That's interesting things to think about there. So that'd be one way. That would give us an old earth, young human race, okay? Second, uh, kind of one that people believe would be the young earth creationism. So you got historic creationism, the young earth, and uh, that's actually that God made everything in six days. Six days, right? And if you were to count back, look at the genealogies, that means our earth is somewhere between 6,000 and 10,000 years old. Six days, God spoke it, he made it. Over a six-day period, young earth creationism would put our entire world, uh, all universe, the earth, all that stuff, somewhere between six and 10,000 years old. And some of you go, yep, I have a problem with that. We'll get to that later, okay? Another belief, uh, another idea about creationism would be something called gap theory. So in that, there's kind of similar to historic creationism where there could be this gap between Genesis 1 and the beginning, definite period of time, and then the rest of the stuff, right? Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 1 could be an indefinite period of time, then Genesis 2 starts kind of the, the clock on the days. But in gap theory, there's this belief that possibly between Genesis 1 and 2, there's some kind of massive calamity that happened to our earth, right? So God would have started things. That's where Satan would have shown up. There'd have been some big battle. Satan would have been kicked out of heaven into hell, that, you know, all that kind of stuff. And God would have then had to begin all of creation over with uh, Adam and Eve, right? So that would be the gap theory, trying to resolve why there's ice age, dark age, all those kind of things. Gap theory would be one of the ways that people do that. No, another, another belief, even in the Christian world, would be kind of this, which we would call the literary, literary framework view. And that's basically saying, uh, this is more of like, it's, it's literature. It's a poem. This, this is just God giving us a symbolism of how the world could have started. So this is more of an, uh, an allegory to explain the beginning of the earth. So some Christians would go, no, we don't think any of that is literal. It's just kind of a picture of the story, right? So that would be the literary view. Um, the other one would be day-age view, and then that one is going, ah, six literal days. It's not six literal days. We believe it really happened, but that day doesn't mean a literal 24-hour period. It could be a day is a, a month, a day is a year, a day is 10,000 years, whatever that is. There's a, many people that go, ah, the sun comes up, sun comes down, but is that really 20 four hours, so that would be another belief that Christians have, that maybe those periods of time weren't actual 24-hour days. And then the final view that um, some Christians kind of would um, hold to would be what we'd call theistic evolution, meaning evolution. Now, I'm not talking about micro, I'm talking about macro, how, you know, homo erectus, then homo sapiens, this evolution where we come from a monkey, you know, these two cells, they kind of evolve. There's some people that believe that uh, that's the way that God decided to bring the, the 
its whole thing about was through evolution. And so it was deistic evolution, meaning God decided to leverage evolution to bring, out, bring about mankind. Got it? So, uh, so you got historic, then old earth, young, uh, young people, uh, young earth, young uh, creation, young earth, young people, gap theory, gap between, literary, it's just allegory, um, day, age, view, longer periods of time, not just necessarily 24 hours, and then the theistic evolution, which God just bends and shapes all things, including evolution. So uh, then you go, well, which one does our church believe, right? Maybe something you want to go, and I'd go, yes. Uh, I would say there are people that feel every one of those categories. They actually could see all those, and that's okay, right? Uh, no, I have my own opinions on it, and I'll just be very frank here. I probably fall into more of the um, the traditional historic creationism, I believe. Um, a couple of very specific things. Uh, in the beginning, God created. It's hard for me to say that the earth is only 6,000 years old. Seems a little weird based on radiometric dating, all that kind of stuff. So that's hard, but I do believe that God then set apart and did six days worth of work. It's pretty impressive. So you got to go, but it's okay if you don't believe that, right? This isn't, you better believe this, or you hate the Bible, or you hate God. Ultimately, kind of the big idea that you have to see here, right, is that there was nothing and then there was something, which is just so profound that God created. He spoke it all into existence. So before creation, there was God. Got that? So before creation, there was someone that was outside of creation, set apart from creation, lords over and bends and shapes creation. God is not a part of creation. He is not a made-up figure. God existed, and then creation exists, right? So um, the, regardless of your view, as a Christian, you got to go, yep, there's a God who stands outside of time, stands outside of creation, and bends and shapes and speaks all this into existence. And so lots of different views there, and that's where I'd go, okay, next question t- tends to come up is, okay, do you believe that the six days are literal, right? Ever been to any of those arguments? Heard those arguments? Pretty big arguments for people. Um, again, you're allowed not to think it's 24-hour period. Personal opinion is I think it is. One, because I don't know why God would clarify these as days. And there's some arguments going, well, the day in Hebrew is the word yom. And that doesn't necessarily mean a 24-hour period, but it can mean a 24-hour period. And it's hard for me to understand why they would say day and then morning and night unless it's an actual day. And you go, well, God can basically do whatever he wants to do. And so I don't even know that he needs a day to create all this. But he decided to create a nice little rhythm for us. In fact, Exodus 20, this is what it says. Um, in the six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. I think those probably are literal days because here we've got Moses talking about what a week looks like. In the six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So God creates this rhythm for us in the beginning. That's why I'd argue it's probably literal days. That's why I like the idea of historic creationism, meaning in the beginning and definite period of time, old earth happened. And then after that, you have these six literal days where God just cranks things out. It's pretty neat to do. Now, the reason that happens in that way, I just want to highlight this. Wish we could talk more about it. Not going to be able to today. Is um, God highlights kind of that seventh day, the rhythm of rest. Uh, Just very honest with you right now. I I wish I could uh, preach to you on that. I'm actually absurdly concerned about our culture and how busy we are, and how busy every single one of our days are, and how much stuff gets crammed in. And no matter if you have kids, grandkids, don't have any kids, it's for all of us. And to be honest with you, I don't feel permission to preach on it, because I would be a huge hypocrite. So I got some work to do in that category of going, I got to figure out a real rhythm in life, because we got to figure this out as a culture, and we got to change it. Um, no, I would offer this. Um, what happens in busyness is distraction happens, and we just caught up. Our RPMs move at such a rate that it's hard for us to slow down. And um, for me, uh, what that 
Um, historically, it's happened as I just would run really, really fast until I found a wall, and I'd run into that, and that'd slow me down for a couple days. And um, got to figure those things out. Got to figure out how our whole um, schedule's determined by ball fields and sports and clubs and uh, social advancement. We just got a pretty overwhelmed culture. And while I'm not ready to teach on it, I will offer you this. Uh, over the next two weeks, we do something on Wednesday nights called Cal. That's Connect on Wednesday. So the goal for all of us here is we want to convince you to, to be known. Come have dinner with us 5.30 on Wednesday nights. And then uh, we offer some Bible classes. Pastor Jeff teaches a class on the Bible. And uh, so now we're working through other things with Pentecost, all sorts of great stuff going on there so you can learn about the Bible. We have some connection classes where you can get to know some new people, get stuff for your kiddos and students. But over the next two weeks, we're actually going to do a two-week session on busyness and distraction. Okay? And it's going to be offered by... Uh, uh, Dr. Katie Bowman, she is the director of the New London Counseling Center that we've just launched and opened. And so she's going to give you a psychological um, perspective on distraction and on uh, mindfulness. Scary word uh, when you think about it in terms of the, like a New Age Buddhist thing. Really neat word when you think about God starting all this in the beginning by asking Adam and Eve where they were. Meaning there's this important thing that we pause long enough to kind of establish where we are. And so Katie's going to teach uh, that on Wednesday night. And then I'll be able to jump in and offer kind of the biblical perspective on that. Specifically looking at Elijah this Wednesday night. So worth your time. You struggle with rhythm, struggle with busyness, with Sabbath. Really good place to start this Wednesday. Okay. So in all that, I'd go, yep, yeah, probably literal 24-hour period. Thanks for listening to that commercial. And so you got there. Now, some things that probably you want to ask are, okay, well, um, how about dinosaurs, right? Your kids want to know, well, if there's dinosaurs and there's fossils, then why don't they show up in this? Where were they? Were they in the old earth? Are they in the new earth? Are they in the 6,000 years? Are they um, earlier or later? I mean, we got all sorts of stuff saying that they're billions of years old. Where did dinosaurs fall in this? Uh, here's what I'll tell you. You're not going to like the answer. This is crazy, though. The Bible is not a book about dinosaurs, <laughs> right? It's also not a book about the Philadelphia Eagles. But guess what? Philadelphia Eagles do exist, but God doesn't mention them at all, right? You may all soar on eagles' wings. By the way, when Elijah was out in the loneliness in the desert wilderness looking for something, God decided to use a raven to bring him food. Don't know what that's about, but, right? <laughs> so, got all these things going on. It's not a book about dinosaurs, so... Can't expect it to be an exhaustive, you know, story of all of human history and science. In fact, the, John says something in the Gospel of John saying, hey, we tell, I'm going to tell you some of the stuff that Jesus did, but I can't tell you all of it. Because if I were to tell you all of it, there would not be a library that could house all this stuff. So he says, I'm going to tell you enough so that you might believe in this. And so God's plan isn't to help you understand dinosaurs through the Bible, right? But I would say that... Um, over 30 times, there's this term, it's tannin in, in the Hebrew, and it means a sea monster. Pretty neat. Um, there is some evidence and some arguments that um, in uh, Job chapter 40 and 41, there's this big giant dinosaur-like thing that may be where it is. Again, though, not going to solve all those answers or solve all those issues. Book, the Bible is not about dinosaurs, okay? It's just not. In fact, uh, there's not a lot in the New Testament where God talks about parenting, but we would think parenting is really important and that we should be good parents. But there's really nothing in the New Testament that talks about parenting, right? So he's got to go, okay, God's book was to help us understand who he is and therefore who we are. That was the ultimate plan. And so, dinosaur, sorry, not going to answer that. Now, um, what we do have to deal with, okay? Thanks for leaning in. This is going to get a little boring for a second, but we'll get back to the good stuff. What we do have to deal with is this um, disparity between what radiometric dating, uh, you know, where you take half-lives of 
things. I'm not, I don't understand it. I do believe science. Scientists are smart here as they look at elements, all, all sorts of uranium. I don't know. Stuff that I can't talk to you about. But there is this belief um, matched by lots of, science, or lots of scientists with lots of different um, evidence that would say that our earth is between uh, four and five billion years old. Four and five billion years old. Uh, you know, really the, the argument is four and a half billion years. No. Uh, since about the 1600s, there was a, a smart priest who started adding up the genealogies in Ireland of, um, of in Genesis and came to the conclusion, in fact, came up with a date that our world started in 4004 B.C. I think it started on a Saturday night at 6 p.m. No kidding. That's kind of what they decided there. So right after dinner, God decided to go start a universe, right? So uh, that'd be 4004 B.C. That's what his thought would be. That therefore would put us at a little over 6,000 years. Um, if you do uh, kind of count the genealogies back in Genesis, you are going to land somewhere between 6,000 and 10,000 years since this world would have began or since Adam and Eve show up. So 10,000 years, even on the stretch, that's the stretch end. 10,000 years is, there's a huge disparity between 10,000 years and 4.5 billion years, right? So what do we do with that? Important that we talk about it, we figure it out, because we don't want to sound um, foolish or silly. And so here's, I'll tell you historically, and even, you know, right now how people usually deal with that. And there's kind of several different categories that people uh, kind of put themselves in. Here's the first one. Uh, some Christians go, scientists are wrong. Science, they're all, they're all dumb. They don't know. They don't know God. They don't know anything. They're wrong. The Bible says it was six days, 6,000 years ago. That, therefore, everything else is wrong. We can't believe anything about science. Science is wrong. It's foolish. It's 6,000 years, not four and a half billion years. Now, um, what that makes us sound like is anti-science. And the reason it makes us sound like anti-science is because we're saying science is wrong. We don't believe in that. So there is some issues there. So some people go, nope, God says it's here. It's only 6,000 years old. That's it. That's what we have to believe. And don't let anybody tell you anything different. Let's start a Christian school. Make sure that they only talk this 6,000 years old. Keep them away from the world. Don't let them go to college because it's 6,000 years. You got me 6,000 years. That's, uh, you know. So you got, got that piece that we got to wrestle through. And so someone go, nope, science is just wrong, right? You know, a couple others like these. Uh, another one that a young earth thinks is 6,000 years old, they would say is, well, um, according to the flood uh, that we'll talk about in a couple weeks, uh, that does some really interesting things to uh, geology. So there's a flood. It comes and puts pressure on the whole earth. way that I would argue it, this is a silly argument, but you know, like if you stay in the bath too long, you get wrinkled. It's not because you're old, right? You're not old. You're, your body just gets wrinkled. And you look older because your body's wrinkled, right? So there's this idea that maybe the flood— Maybe the flood does some really interesting stuff to the, uh, the, the landscape, to the rocks, to the geology. So maybe that's a possibility. Someone would say, yeah, we believe that there is some radiometric dating. We just think it's false because of the flood, right? Yeah, that one, uh, you can do with that what you want. Just want to share with you some of the thoughts. Another one, and I think this one's actually really interesting, um, is this thought, which is, um, this is for the young earth folks to say that it's only six to 10,000 years old. That it's this question, how old was Adam when he was born? Right? Does Adam have a belly button? Right? I mean, so how old was he? So you hang out with Adam on day one, and he's like, hey, Adam, how old are you? And he's like, I'm a day old. You're like, you're a 200-pound baby. <laughs> you're a poor mom. Adam was like, I didn't have a mom. And you're like, what? You know, like, so how old was Adam when he was born? How about the garden? He said that there were fruit to eat from the trees. Were those, was that fruit one day old? I mean, how big was a tree? If you had to cut it open, would there have been any rings in it? You follow? Like, so what we would, some would argue, and I think it's a really interesting thought, uh, 
is that, okay, just as God created a mature Adam, we'd all argue that's true. God created a mature Eve. They were older, 20s, 30s, teens, whatever it is. God created a mature Adam. God created a mature garden. Then is it possible that God would have also created a mature earth? Actually, a pretty interesting thing to think about. Okay, what does that look like? Could God have created this mature environment? So that would be one of the ways that people wrestle with that. Um, yeah, another one would just say, no, no, we believe the earth is old. Um, we just would say that those aren't 24-hour days. Each one of those days, God would create, you know, animals. God would create sea urchins, whatever it is. And that would be like a, a whole era. So a day could be a billion years, right? A million years. And so some would go, okay, that 24-hour period doesn't uh, do that. And then um, where I kind of land personally, so this is my own opinion here, is I, th- th- that idea that... Um, in the beginning, that would be, in the beginning, God created. That word in the beginning means an indefinite period of time. So in the beginning, God created the earth, right? So the earth exists. It's really, really old, been there for a while, so God created it. And then on a different day, he starts this time period. He starts the clock, and he gets to work, and six days of stuff happens. That would give us a old earth, right? And a young, um, young human race. Now, uh, what is interesting about all this, and you can be, uh, believe in evolution, you can be a naturalist, or you can be a Christian, and all of us, as you look at kind of um, the evidence, um, homo sapiens, not homo erectus, homo neanderthals, which, by the way, there is no genetic connection between all those, homo sapiens, and agriculture, and um, people living in community, like the first humans that we see about 10,000 years ago. So the idea of humans being young, young human race, that's actually evidentiary in, in science. So homo sapiens show up about the same time that the Bible would have said that they show up. So there's some interesting there, things there to go. Okay, could it be an old earth and just a young human race? Real possibility, right? Which then leads to, no, 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 I've told that there's evidence in Africa of homo erectus or homo neanderthalus or whatever those things are, cavemen, whatever, showing up 200,000 years ago. And now there's evidence go, well, they could have even been 2 million years ago. And what we know and what's taught is that uh, first you started crawling and then you kind of stood up and then all of a sudden we evolve into this, this human that thinks and acts and all that kind of stuff. And so um, what is kind of prevalent right now, it's interesting, and I would, this is going to sound really offensive, I would say it's almost demonic, okay, is this idea of... Um, Evolution. Now, I'm not talking about microevolution. I'm not talking about ad- adaptation. I would go, yep, that's true. We all know that's true, right? Uh, we know that people adapt and animals adapt. And here's what I just argue. I would actually argue that's God's gift to us. That's God's grace to allow us to respond to whatever it is. If you look at little kids and the kind of life that we've been walking through foster care training and hearing about what these kiddos go through and what happens to their brains, the fact that they can adapt and, and fight through that and protect themselves and the fight, freeze, flight, all those things, like that's God's gift to us that those things are possible to be able to adapt. So I'm not talking about microevolution, adjustments in our life, adjust, adjustments in kind of species. What I'm talking about is one species evolving into another species. That's how we refer to macroevolution. And it comes from um, a guy named Charles Darwin. You're f- familiar with this. Uh, he wrote a book that you would refer to and hear from uh, your teachers or scientists. A book called, let me read this to you because I want to get the whole thing, The Origin of Species. But that's not the actual title of the book. Let me read you the actual title of the book. Charles Darwin wrote in 1859, The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, comma, or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. So, 
what Darwin writes about is that there are actually some races that are better and more evolved than other races. Now, we use this as scientific evidence to go, nope, this is evolution, but we don't talk about the other side because we know that's racism and bigotry, right? Literally, one of the things that Charles Darwin argued was that whites had out-evolved blacks. And so we use this thing to talk about macroevolution from this writer who's actually talking about human race and how some races have evolved and are better than other races. Raise your hand if you believe that part. You wouldn't dare in this room, right? Because you know it's bigotry. And so we take this and go, well, he's right about macroevolution, but he's definitely wrong about racism. So we have this whole book written about this macroevolution, this idea that one species can evolve into another species, and that is the prevalent thought of how life got here. You know, it is a massive theory that we all got to work through. And I just, and again, I don't, I don't want to be um, antagonistic, but I'm going to be a little bit today. And so just want to give you um, a few quick arguments of why uh, macroevolution is, is a lie. Okay, a lie. Just very bluntly a lie. And here's, um, here's the first one. You ready? That nothing made everything. Nothing made everything, right? Like, there was nothing, and it just made everything. Like, there was nothing, and the next, you know, billions of years later, here we are on the stage. Nothing made everything. You know where that shows up? When you walk into your kid's room, I've had this experience, and um, in the bed is candy wrappers. Hey, Briggs, why are there candy wrappers in the bed? I don't know. I didn't do it. They just showed up. <laughs> right? Like, that's the only place that this is a category where a, an adolescent would just go, I don't know, it wasn't me. You see it all the time. There's all sorts of funny videos out there where a kid will break something. There'll be a loud noise, and the mom and dad will go, what was that? You know, they'll be doing some kind of cartwheel on the video camera, and they'll bust the lamp, and you'll hear the mom go, what was that? And they'll go, I don't know, I heard it too, right? <laughs> this is the only category where we see this, where nothing makes something, and yet, foundationally, all of macroevolution starts with there was nothing and then there was something. So nothing makes something, right? Now, it leads to kind of the second part of that is this. And it says that chaos makes order. So there was nothing, then there was something, but the something that was was this chaos. And out of chaos just magically appears order, right? So if you believe this, don't ever cut your grass again. Don't weed your garden. You don't have to, right? Just let it play out long enough, and eventually all that chaos, it'll just become orderly, right? Leave all the laundry in the laundry room. In fact, don't even put it in the laundry room. Just take it off. And if you're a man, just put it really close to the hamper. <laughs> right? As long as it's over there somewhere, if you just flick it, you know, within about, there's like a three-foot grace period there. You're looking for my wife. She's in the viewing room. You can't see her right now. But yeah, there's a, three, a three-foot p- grace period, right? This idea that chaos automatically moves to order. Have you seen any place in the history of the world where something chaotic magically magically becomes orderly? No, all the evidence is to the contrary. In fact, what we know is out of order eventually becomes chaos. Every time. If you don't manage something, if you don't maintain it, if you don't stay with it in the garden, in the house, in your family, in your marriage, right? Whatever it is, everything orderly evolves into chaos. But in this idea that all this chaos eventually came to order, right? In fact, the, the whole idea of science is being able to describe systems in order, which only comes from a God who can create systems in order. So the very explanation of science is going, we're actually showing you how orderly 
God is and all the systems that he put into place, right? So there is nothing where order turn, or chaos turns into order. In fact, I want to read you a quote. This is an astronomer. astronomer. His name's Fred Hoyle. He said that the probability of life arising on the earth by purely natural means without special divine aid is less than the probability that a flight-worthy Boeing 747 should be assembled by a hurricane roaring through a junkyard. Right? This idea that uh, this big hurricane, there's all this junk, and then it comes through, and all of a sudden you have this beautiful, orderly, perfect plane. Right? So this idea that order or chaos creates order is uh, just, there's just no foundation for it. Right? And one of the interesting things you think about is going, in fact, whenever you see something that's created, created, let's say you say, say Legos, you see them in your house, you don't go, wow, those magically appeared. Right? You would say, no, some designer made the Lego, right? And you're a kid. And here's what you'd say. The more the systems, the more complicated, the more complex the building is, the thing that was built, the more intelligent the designer, right? You look at a car and you are amazed at the beauty and the way that a car runs and the amount of horsepower. You don't go, wow, that just happened, you know, accidentally. You go, there is some kind of intelligent grand designer who does that. Look at a big, beautiful skyscraper. You don't go, wow, that just happened. You actually give credence and credit to an intelligent and informed designer as a result. So in every other category, when we see something that's been created, we give credit to the one that created it. Except for the whole universe, we go, nope, just happened kind of magically. It was chaotic, and then there became order, which leads to kind of the next thought, which I think is important. That uh, material creates immaterial. Or another way to say it, impersonal matter was created, uh, created personal humanity. So at one point, we were just material, a bag of bones. And somehow that bag of bones evolved to having this range of emotions, like feelings and thoughts, love. How in the world could some kind of tablecloth eventually evolve into something that could love and feel, right? How in the world could that grass out there evolve into something that can feel and cry and laugh and experience all those things, right? There is no scientific explanation for how we got feelings and thoughts except for a grand design, right? So the idea that uh, material creates immaterial. Um, another thing that's really interesting, and, uh, and I'd say where macroevolution's biased is there actually is no evidence that a species has ever evolved. What I mean by that is um, what they'd say, well, you couldn't see that evidence. You, by the way, over the last hundred years, we've been tr- people have been trying to create this macroevolution process. They have had no luck, right? It's not that. But even beyond that, there's this kind of this understanding that you go, no, the reason we can't create it is it takes billions or thousands of years to evolve, right? But here's one of the interesting things. We have all sorts of fossil records, right? We have fossil records of uh, birds. We have fossil records of alligators. We have all these different fossil records. But you know what we don't have? We don't have a single fossil record of something in transition. There's not a single one out there. There's not a single fossil record where there was something and there was something else. You go, yeah, yeah, this Homo erectus eventually becomes a Homo sapien. There is no fossil record. There is no bones that show that transitional piece. So if it happens over a period of time, then why don't we have any fossil record showing that that period of time included this evolution, Right? But even beyond all that, which is, I think, I mean, really important to talk about, I think what's really interesting is just how sad your world has to be if this is where you land. Like, 
So you came from nothing, you returned to nothing, and we'd all agree with that, right? And you live, and then you die, and that's just the end. And what macroevolution says is your job is just to outlive and outsurvive other people. And that uh, your legacy is through your genetics, and you should have lots and lots of babies, and that's the end, right? That's just, that's the whole purpose of life? Right, that's it? Like, doesn't that sound hopeless? And then you look at our world and you go, boy, it sure seems hopeless. Deranged people walking into movie theaters and schools with guns going, there's nothing but despair. Right? If, if we live in all this pain and sorrow and there is no other hope, then why not just, right, end your misery sooner? In fact, uh, Stephen Hawking, Richard Dawkins, some of the believers were asked about this, Dawkins in particular, and they said, um, does this make you depressed? Like this belief system that you have? And I want you to hear his thoughts. Um, I don't feel depressed about it, but if somebody does, that's their problem. Maybe the logic is deeply pessimistic, but the universe is bleak, cold, and empty. So what? So you go, there's something really interesting going on in our world, and this is the prevalent thoughts of the day, is the universe is bleak, cold, and empty. So what? Right? So you go, well, that would explain why there's so much hopelessness in our world, if this is all there is. And so I just want to point out one last thing here. Here's another scientist who is also talking about this belief system and just the biasness of it. His name is uh, George Wald. He was a Nobel uh, Prize winner in 1967 in uh, medicine physiology. Bright guy from Harvard. You go, good scientist, probably objective. I want you to hear his words um, when it comes to, and he says this, when it comes to the origin of life, we have only two possibilities as to how life arose. One is spontaneous generation arising to evolution. The other is supernatural creative act of God. Two options, right? And he goes this. There is no third possibility. Scientist, Harvard, brilliant guy, Nobel, Peace, uh, Nobel Prize winner. Uh, the other is creative act of God. There is no third possibility. Spontaneous generation was scientifically disproved 100 years ago by Louis Pasteur, Spallanzani, Reddy, and others. This leads us scientifically to only one possible conclusion, that life arose as a supernatural creative act of God. Okay, objective guy. Now listen to this. This is his words. I will not accept that philosophically. I will not accept that philosophically because I do not want to believe in God. Not scientifically. I will not receive that or I will not accept that philosophically. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible. Spontaneous generation arising to evolution. You go, how does someone end up there? How does someone go, nope, 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 I can see the science. I don't really care. I refuse to believe this. And uh, here's how. I want to kind of point this out to you because I just say some of us fall in this category. There's kind of two options. There's creationism. We believe in creation. believe there's a God who created us. Or what we call paganism. That's just, uh, don't believe any of that stuff. Those are kind of the only two lanes. He goes, here's the two options. There's either that there's evidence of an intelligent designer or there's this process which is scientifically disproven, but I'm still going to believe it. And Paul actually sort of writes about this um, in Romans. So Paul is a writer in the New Testament. And I love his book to Romans, how it starts, because he's writing to an 
educated crowd, which this is you guys, right? You've researched this, say you should research more, you should figure it out. And he's writing to help them understand what is so wrong and flawed about our psyche and our soul and all those things. So he writes to an educated crowd. And so he's writing people and he's telling them what's wrong and why we believe so many falsehoods and why we fill our head with so much nonsense and why our world is so broken. And this is what he says, Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read 14 verses, make a few comments as we finish up. And it's going to be up here on the screens. Um, and he starts with this, Romans 1, chapter 18, or verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So God, Paul's going, hey, you know this. So those of you who suppress truth, there is wrath coming. This is a wrathful, angry God. And you go, I thought God was loving, right? And I go, you're loving too. And you love your kids. And anybody who did any damage to your kids, molestation, anything like that, right? How would you feel towards them? That you would be angry. You would be wrathful. You would do whatever you had to do to stand in the way of that damage happening to your child, right? We all would agree with that. So God, looking at the human race, filled with anger at these lies and falsehoods that have been filling us, and there is wrath. Paul's going, God is angry at how broken our world is, and angry what this lying and this deception has done to our souls. So the wrath of God, since, this is what he says, what may be known about God is plain to them. Look at the cosmos. There is, when you go, that's a really neat design. There must be an intelligent designer. You look up and go, nope, that's uh, order and chaos and order, right? He said, it is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood what has been made so that people are without excuse. Look up. Where do those stars come from? How does all this happen? How do you breathe in oxygen and spit out carbon dioxide? How does that make how life happens, right? Just look around you. Since, uh, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. This guy going... There's only two options. This one's disproved, but I philosophically will not accept that there's a God. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles, right? So what you're going to see happens, and you heard Megan talk about it uh, before we sang this song, The Stand. What happens is when people don't see a God anymore, they worship something. We all worship something. And the interesting thing is what most people end up worshiping, we'll talk a lot about this next week, is God's pinnacle or apex of creation, you know, the whole culmination of creation is setting this world up to create something in God's image, us, and having us be in a relationship with them and worship them. What happens is people start worshiping other people because it, if it's not God, it's the closest thing to it, right? So we worship God's greatest creation, which is humankind or mankind, and particularly even at the pinnacle of that is the woman, right? As God makes a woman in this, and so what we see is people start worshiping that instead. Because of this, Right, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So Paul's going, let me just make sure you understand. I fully agree with this, right? Uh, because of this, God gave them over, gave them over. God released them into this. Okay, fine. If, that is the, if that's the route you want to take, if that's the path you want to take, here you go. I will remove every obstacle and you can chase that route down. It says God gave them over 
to their shameful lusts. Even their woman exchanged natural uh, sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned their natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Talk more about that next week, not this week. Stay with me here. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over again to their depraved minds so that what they uh, what they, that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled, watch this, with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they know not only continue to do these things, these very things, but also also approve of those who practice them. So here's what happens. God goes, okay, look, if you are going to turn your eye on creator God and start worshiping creation, he says, go, go do it. Go chase after it. Chase after it. And you go, why in the world would God do that? Well, it's really simple. Because what you discover when you chase satisfaction and value and identity and lust and all those things, what you find at the end of all those paths is it's not enough. So God's going, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're either going to discover that I'm God and worship me as God and respond to me as God, either through humility, understanding that you're not God, or through humiliation. What you're going to find is that there is nothing in this created world that can satisfy you, fulfill you, or forgive you when you mess it up. So God's going, let me turn you over to it. Let me turn you over to all these things because the only solution is for you to finally get some self-awareness that that next thing you think will fix you won't fix you either. That next discovery, that next idea, those things won't fix you either. And so the whole purpose is, and Paul will talk about this in the rest of Romans, is going, at some point, you've got to understand that God releases you to your own brokenness so that hopefully at some point you'll get some awareness and go, that doesn't satisfy me. That marriage didn't satisfy me. That operation didn't satisfy me. And so the whole purpose is God going, what I need you to discover is that there is nothing in this world that can save you, fulfill you, fix you, or forgive you. Because from the foundations of the earth, God always had a plan for that. He always had a plan to bring his children back to him. And he wanted them to discover that there was nothing in their behavior that could fix them. There's nothing they could do to make them right with God or with anyone else. And so God, from the very beginning, was always giving us opportunities to discover him, himself. And so God allows people to walk these paths, allows people to turn over every leaf, allows people to wreck their own life. So at some point, they finally look back at God and go, okay, God, it must be you. You must be the only thing. You must be the only way I can find satisfaction. You must be the only thing that can bring me hope and joy and fulfillment. And Paul actually says it in Romans. He he discovers all these things. And he says, what a wretched man I am. He discovers, I am not good. I can't fix me. All these other things that I chased after, they were, he actually calls it scubalon, horse manure, bull manure, right? He calls it all rubbish. He goes, all those things, they were nothing. They did nothing for me. What a wretched man I am. And then he goes this, but praise be to Christ Jesus. So this whole discovery is go, God, I can't fix myself. If there is any hope, it must be you. And the reality is, you'll see next week, is God always had a plan. It was always Jesus, and he was always going to bring us back to the table. Always. And so Pastor Gary's going to come up here and prepare us for this understanding of what it means to be welcomed back to the table by what Jesus did for us. And then we're going to sing a song together and close. So Gary, would you lead us, please? Thanks, Josh.